Welcome to Islam for Christians. This is episode 102, Quran, Surah 91, Ash Shams, The Sun. By the sun and his brightness, and the moon when she follows him, and the day when it reveals him, and the night when it enshrouds him, and the heaven and him who built it, and the earth and him who spread it, and a soul and him who perfected it, and inspired it with a conscience of what is wrong for it and what is right for it. He is indeed successful who causes it to grow, and he is indeed a failure who stunts it. The tribe of Thamud denied the truth in their rebellious pride, when the basest of them broke forth. And the messenger of Allah said, it is the she-camel of Allah, so let her drink. But they denied him, and they hamstrung her. So Allah doomed them for their sin and raised their dwellings. He dreads not the sequel of events. And now the Arabic, as recited by Saad al-Gandhi. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والشمس وضحاها والقمر إذا سلاها والنهار إذا جلاها والليل إذا يغشاها والسماء وما بناها والأرض وما طحاها for those who listen to the episode on Surah 92, you might see some similarities here. That last surah was called the night, as opposed to this one, which is called the sun. And it follows a similar structure as the last one. Every line rhymes, as with the last one. But the rhyme structure is even stricter, always with an H-A sound. It makes similar contrasts in the creation uh, to the previous surah that we just looked at, surah 92. And then it compares them to the human soul and then warns of dire consequences for those who are on the wrong side of that last contrast. So, yes, very similar in many ways. So, is this Surah related historically to Surah 92? Maybe. But... I think it's just a very similar style to the other suras of that era. This is a very early Meccan surah with a disciplined rhyme and meter to maximize the impact on the community he was trying to win over. 
these were the days when Muhammad needed to get people's attention. And works like this helped a, a whole lot in that degree because poetry was such a gigantic, gigantic thing in ancient Mecca. So if you can do it well, it gets people's attention and it gives you credibility. And it's great poetry in every sense of the word, not just meter and rhyme, but in lofty artistic content in Arabic, at least. Now, this surah ends with a historical example. And in English, it does seem very tacked on, but obviously that's just our cultural limitation. It actually flows way better than you think it does. And we'll get to Thamud and the disaster there a bit later. But the lofty prose here and the use of nature to set up this dualistic thought structure, you know, one against the other, opposites, but not really, uh, you know, two things in the same thing, <laughs> encouraging the reader to think in contrasts and then using that same thing to deliver the message. It would be poetry even if it didn't have any rhyme or rhythm. And like with Surah 92, you see the natural world used as a proof of God and as an example of the duality of nature and the duality of humankind. This is something that you'll see a lot. It, it's hit on again and again in the Quran and many other aspects of art throughout the centuries, really. You know, this isn't a concept just limited to ancient Arabia. It's almost universal. Um, most recently, it's most recent that I can remember, this was something wonderfully exemplified in our pop culture in the movie Full Metal Jacket by the character named Joker. Now, in that movie, Joker was a Marine fighting in Vietnam, and he had written on his helmet the words, born to kill. And on his uniform, he wore a peace symbol. Now, at one point, a somewhat humorless commanding officer asks, is that some kind of sick joke? And then he replies, oh, I was suggesting something about the duality of man. And from our vantage point, maybe it was also a commentary on his character, the duality of Joker himself, because Joker inhabited one body, but he had two very different things within it. There was the humor that earned him his nickname and his warmth and his concern for his friends, but also the man who shoots a woman in cold blood. Uh, fair warning, that movie is a Stanley Kubrick classic, but certainly not for everyone, and definitely not for kids or those who don't want that raw of a peek at some of the darker aspects of our species. So going back to the Quran's use of this same thing, of this duality, in a single entity. It's a similar concept. It's describing one world, but look at what's in the world. The sun and the moon. This is right at the beginning of the surah. These things do not occupy different worlds, the sun and the moon, especially in a world before advanced astronomy, when we actually knew what was out there. They're in the same world and always there. Same with day and night. You know, then we see that concept advanced to the heavens 
and the earth with the words and the heaven and him who built it and the earth and him who spread it. Now, the Quran is not talking about heaven as a concept here. In this use, heaven is a physical thing and not the place you go when you die. You know, it's everything a human sees and does not see when he looks up. The sky, the planets, the galaxies, the cosmos. Similarly, lines 7 and 8 tell us that God built the human soul within the same parameters, an ability to see the distinction between right and wrong, and the freedom to choose right and wrong, and the desire for right and for wrong. This is something embedded in the human soul, this capacity for good and the capacity for evil. Now, there are many lines in this Sora that are extremely tricky for a translator. Um, you may have noticed in the first few how uh, the translator I used actually used, say, sun and moon as he and she to, you know, accentuate the contrast. Uh, they don't all do that. Some of them just say it. But in this one, the ones that are really hard have to do with the human soul. Because here's how these lines that I'm talking about, this is lines seven and eight, right? This is how it usually reads. It says something like, and by the soul and the one who fashioned it and inspired it with discernment of its wickedness and its righteousness. And that's great. But in Arabic, that's not exactly what it says. If you're going to say it much more literally, um, somewhat literally at least, it would read like this. And by the soul and him that fashioned it and inspired it with its immorality and its desire to protect itself. Remember that last line? And inspired it, meaning the soul, with its immorality and its desire to protect itself. Now compare that to the previous translation I gave you and see if you can notice the subtle theological difference there. The second one is literally saying that God is inspiring immorality. Now any Christian clergyman would read that and go, whoa, 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 slow down. That cannot possibly mean what it says. Why? Well, common sense and blasphemy and our religion would be very different if God were out there inspiring evil. Surely the text means something slightly different. And Muslim translators see this too, and they make the alterations accordingly. And that's not necessarily some diabolical plot to make the Quran look better. And this is what I mean when I say you need to read religious texts as a whole particularly ones that rely on story and or poetry. You know, sometimes certain words are used just because they sound better. This isn't some, you know, thousand word treatise of precise theology. Because, come on, is God really inspiring wickedness? Um, no, that's insane. Um, I mean, really the rest of the Quran would kind of refute that concept in general. 
And again, that's why the translators translate it the way they do. Because be it a Christian God or a Muslim God, the creation is what creates evil and is responsible for evil, not God. But both these things, good and evil, dwell within a single person. Just as the sky has the sun and the moon, and the earth has a day and a night, and the world has an earth and a sky, and so on and so on and so on. Now, this being an early Meccan surah, it may have been very important to drive these concepts home to a people who might not be familiar with the set of moral universe we all live in, the set of moral concepts that we all live in. And we live in it because, you know, all these years later, we grew up in the Judeo-Christian worldview, and it's so omnipresent, no one even notices it. Even if they know nothing about the Bible or religion, they're in it. You know, even if a majority of, say, a, a European country, even if they say they don't believe in the biblical God, they still live in his ethical universe, whether they believe it or not. Because, quite honestly, secular ethics, it's made some valiant attempts, but in the end, secular ethics and all that, it's just the slow-witted stepchild of religion. You know, really, if its parents don't stay right on top of it, it will wander off a cliff or float off into space. So imagine you're in a world where Christianity had not taken root, and you want to instill a bunch of primitive Vikings with the biblical concepts of God and morality and soul and the importance of it. Well, where do you start? You start at the beginning, at the very basics, the most basic elements of nature. It's really good technique uh, that Muhammad is using here, or the Quran is using here, or a combination of both. I mean, it really is. So this surah talks about the soul, and then provides a historical example to give to the people. And that's where we get to the story of the tribe of Thamud. It's something historical, something concrete that the people can relate to. I know that when you read this story in English, like I've mentioned before, this seems tacked on, out of place. But again, in the Arabic, it flows perfectly with the rest of the poem. That's just something to keep in mind. But, you know, this is, this story is the closer to kind of bring these concepts back to the real world, to tell the Arabs that, hey, this is not just some in-the-sky thing. Defying God has some very, very real consequences. So, Thamud. What happened to Thamud, this ancient tribe in Arabia? Of course, at the time for them, not very ancient. There was a prophet named Salah who was sent to these people. Now, I don't know if these names were previously known to anyone as Muhammad was telling them, but my best guess based on what I've seen is that at least any educated person at the time probably knew about Thamud, the tribe of Thamud, which was a northwestern Arabian kingdom uh, that had collapsed quite recently. So 
I'm just kind of assuming the name was known. But the story and this person, Salah, I'm not really sure where all that came from. It's seriously unique to the Quran, as far as I know, and as far as I've been able to find. And this is definitely a name worth remembering, because regardless of where it came from, it comes up several times in the Quran, whether regarding Thamud or uh, Ad, A-A-D, who were their ancestors. But here's the basic story being told. Salah was a prophet being appointed to these people, and he preached for a long time, but no one listened. He was preaching basically the same thing Muhammad was preaching. And then the people asked for a miracle as proof. And God gave a female camel to Saleh. Now, that's not exactly a miracle, but the community could use it. I mean, at least it's something. All they had to do, and this was the stipulation, they just had to be nice. They had to be nice to this camel, and everything would be okay. But they couldn't handle that simple directive. And so they hamstrung it, and they tortured this poor camel. So as punishment for this, I mean, on top of a whole lot of other things, really, they were all killed three days later in some kind of massive Sodom-like calamity. Now, the major difference between this episode and Sodom is that this was a more discerning punishment. Because whatever it was, Salah was fine. And so were any righteous people in the community. You know, this wasn't uh, people fleeing the city and being burned and turned into salt and all that. But what specifically happened, or is even claimed to have happened, is pretty mysterious. The Quran never really lets you know. And in the same way, the people of Thamud, in general, they're mysterious. They're usually referred to as a people stretching up the west side of the Arabian Peninsula from around Medina to the north of the Red Sea. But in non-Islamic accounts, they're barely mentioned. Not that they weren't there, but this is another chance to observe just how isolated this place was, despite being quite close to many great civilizations. Now, there are a lot of obvious geographic reasons for that, like the land route through Sinai and the presence of the empty quarter of the Arabian desert. But like so many other things that happened here, almost nothing would be known about these people if not for the many, many Islamic references. And no one, aside from the Quran, no one seems to comment on what ultimately happened to these people. This isn't like Sodom where archaeologists are flooding the place because even non-believers can see that something really horrible definitely happened here, you know, like a comet or a meteor or something. But in the case of Tamut, I'm not sure they'd even know where to look exactly. However, history is kind of beside the point here. It's the moral lesson that is the main point. So let's focus on that. That cruelty to an innocent creature, in this case, the camel, that was the final straw, the, 
last bit of cruelty that just sent God over the edge. They lacked compassion for God's creatures, and hence, they did not fear God's retribution, and hence, they did not believe in God. Now, to some, that might seem a little extreme. I mean, really? For the sake of camel? Did God join PETA or something? Is this really that huge of a deal? Well, first of all, this was just the last of a series of events. We don't know what all those events are, but that part does seem to be clear. It wasn't just this thing. But there's also something larger at play here. The innocence and the helplessness of the camel points to a larger truth here. Just think about anyone you knew as a kid who was cruel to animals. And the kid who, like, he would throw rocks at squirrels and anything he could find or enjoyed stepping on bugs just a little too much. Did that kid grow up to do anything positive? It's possible he did, and it's almost surely a he, but not likely. In my case, these kids grew up to hurt humans and even kill them. One kid I remember, he ended up on death row for killing a disabled woman, you know, for her drugs. Great guy, huh? And there was another guy who almost surely killed a few people before he ended up running from the cops and dying in a crash. Uh, it was pretty gruesome, actually. These things, they don't usually come out of nowhere. And when you look back, you know, you come home one day and they say, oh, such and such did this. And you're not really surprised, like not remotely surprised. You're like, oh, well, that sounds about right. It's pretty easy to see that kind of thing coming. Now, the same thing applies here. If these people, after all this, cannot even treat a camel with some kind of decency, and it's a she-camel, so it's more useful than others, meaning that they could get milk from it. And uh, I'm, I'm sure, I don't know much about camels, but I, I'm sure a she-camel can carry things too. But it's that attitude that I think may have been so off-putting. I can hurt this thing, so I will. And that is evil. But even more than that, there is an implied spite here, a spite toward God, almost a hatred toward God in this action toward the camel. Not that we don't all act that way from time to time. I'm sure many a Muslim imam has centered sermons around this camel and the fact that we should be careful that we are not hamstringing figurative camels from God. A Christian preacher would do the exact same thing if we had this material. But this was just another level of spite and the final straw, so to speak. This wasn't carelessness. This was a direct confrontation with God, and you are not going to win that. And this was kind of an omnipresent thought, I would think, to Muhammad and to the Muslims in the early Meccan community. This is an early Meccan surah, meaning 
it was being delivered to a people who may turn out to, and share the fate of Thamud. I'm sure that was Muhammad's worry, or at least one of them. Mecca might be going down this route of pretty much directly confronting and denying a prophet of God. Now, Mecca was actually quite lucky. They would live to tell the tale. And they live quite well, actually, considering the circumstances. But this was early on. And Muhammad, I'm sure, never saw any of that coming. So the warning here is of imminent destruction. And like Thamud, the people of Mecca were being given a sign from God. Muhammad would have said the sign from God is the Quran itself. This thing I am telling you right now. Muhammad's message would be the camel in the story. And at this point, very few people were listening. And that's why it closes this sermon. It's saying, hey, the one who created you can just as easily destroy you. As in, I am the Lord your God. I brought you into this world and I can take you out of it. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Insha'Allah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.